and we are live. It is value after hours. It's 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast, 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast. Joined, as always, by Jake Taylor and Billy Brewster is back. Billy. He's mid Yes, I am. I'm yeah. under construction, so I'm <laughs> going to mute myself for a lot of this. Oh, boy. But it just went off, so I can think. I might have to take my shirt off. It's hot, quite hot, with a front door off in Florida. In Even hotter if that happens. Yeah. Hey, oh. Hit him with it. Hey, oh. I might get some views on this podcast. Yeah, it's the thunder down under. I do not think. Uh, I've never heard that for myself, but uh, I uh, I don't think I'm what's going to get views, but we'll see. YouTube might flag it as uh, potentially offensive content. Yeah. There's too much brown sugar in that oatmeal. <laughs> hey, now. Just gonna do, I'm going to do a roundup, fellas. So Nashville, London, okay, Los yeah. Angeles, Nova Scotia, Toronto, Gothenburg, Sweden, Amsterdam, Scotland, Altamonte Springs, Florida, Valencia. What's up? Wow. Kirkheim Tech. What's up, fellas? Glad to have everybody join us. Yeah, it is warm in California right now. Yeah, how hot? I hear it's hotter than all all get out, as they say. Uh, today is forecast to be 115 degrees at my house. Ooh, no, thank you. 82 for me. And I did I did not move to Phoenix last time I checked. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. Whew. It's a little warm. It's Florida, Florida summer is not not so bad this year, relative to the rest. How close are you to the beach? We are very close. That's always helpful. Yes. That's nice. Where where I am, I get a breeze most of the time, which is important. Yeah. Roman Empire is checking in. Good. No. Offshore gas platform. Historic. Israel. That might be the winner. Offshore gas platform. Wow. Nice. Send us some scuttlebutt. <laughs> or some energy. I think everyone needs it right now. That's right. Ship it over to Europe. Oh. What's on tap for today, boys? What do we got? I have uh, Chris Leidner. He's an uh, yeah. old uh, value, deep value friend of mine. Wrote an article over the weekend looking at does tech outperform, you know, just by virtue of the fact that it's tech. Uh, no, but he has some interesting stuff. Like just we were talking about terracaps. <laughs> there was some interesting stuff in the. We were talking about terracaps. I actually hadn't heard that term before. He used that last week or whenever it was. Um, so he looked at the terracaps and he's and he's got some. He said, "Take these growth rates, project them forward five years. We're going to go and do that exercise again." So Jay he got on the exercise. world. Oh, all right. And. Uh, yeah, some interesting. I, I, it's not. I mean, I've I've stopped saying this stuff is impossible, but it's it's an interesting thought process. <laughs> what about you, JT? What you got? Well, we're going to be unpacking some treasures from Ed Chancellor's new book, The Price of Time, uh, and it's going to be a little bit all over the place because I just went through and took all my notes out of it, and I'll just kind of pick and choose some some good quotes and some good ideas. Hit them with us. Yeah. Well. So you- We'll bounce around a little bit. It's not going to be a nice coherent narrative. Sorry. You're still reading the the, the, the hardcover. You, you like the. I'm a yeah. I'm a physical book reader you still. You don't Kindle. You know, I love the idea of being able to copy and paste the Kindle, and like mm-hmm. it seems like a really smart way to do things. And traveling is obviously nice, but I just do not retain the information like I do when I read a hardcover and write it, and then go back through and transcribe out my notes. It's just. I, if the whole point of it is to like learn from it, I just it's inferior for me going Kindle, even though the wife is not happy about all the books that I have in my office. Like we had a little conversation about that recently. <laughs> I, had to, I had to throw a whole lot of mine away. I had to throw away like 10, 10 uh, books. legal legal boxes of those things. And I, I get them all on the, get them all on the Kindle these days because it's backlit doesn't wake up the uh, the baby sleeping in the room that's not a problem for me anymore but that was the, the original reason and now you can make the you can make the text bigger which is important I'm on the second to largest text Uh-oh. on I say it's gone <laughs> so if I'm looking at your phone on the plane can I read what you're saying yeah. from like four rows away it's on grandma mode I uh, I haven't 
I, for the for the reason that I don't like people looking over my shoulder, I I just squint my way through it. But at home, it's it's comically big. No one's going to be able to read it. <laughs> you should just have your background picture of you in a thong, and then if anybody looks, they'll be disgusted. Not or me in a thong. We can take a shot at me, not you. Uh, though it would be odd for you to be looking at me every time you locked your phone in that way. Anyway, I digress. Uh, I think the point of reading books is to signal how many books you've read, Jake. That's the problem. You're trying to learn. Good point. Yeah. So you're welcome for that. Um, I don't know. I'm going to, yeah, that's true. I'm going to talk a little bit about, uh, Mabison, Michael Mabaswan. I should be able to say it by now, but I can't. He wrote a paper in January 29th of 2014 that circulated on the Twitter machine and uh, it's about PE ratios and then how to think correctly. So I I thought it was a veggies. Yeah. I kind of didn't think I'd get all that much out of it. And then I was reading it and I was like, this is actually pretty good. Imagine that he's way smarter than I am. Imagine that the goat coming through with a good, a nice research paper. (laughs) Yeah. He's so prolific at, at publishing. I don't know how he does it, honestly. I don't know either. I can't do anything that consistently for a while. Fellas, um, let me kick it off with yeah, these things because I just have some statistics. It's not it's not going to take a long time, but it's kind of like kick us off for a discussion about, you know, the assumptions that we're making. So the terror caps for people who don't know, because I didn't last week when I hadn't heard that term before, but Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Meta and Google um meta may not be anymore but yeah 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 that's fair but i think it's still it's still top five or by the at the time this was done it's top five so it and this is pretty recent last week or so so um apple has grown since i think this is since listing or since the data he could find the data to 85 some of these are there is long that this is the longest term possible that we can figure that he could figure out so the 25 year Compound annual growth rate for Apple, 22.3%. For Microsoft, 25.7%. For Amazon, 34.8%. And at the size that they currently are, Apple is 11% of GDP. Microsoft is 8.5% of GDP. And Amazon is 5.7%. If you take those, those growth rates and you project them forward five years, you get... Um, Apple gets to $7.6 trillion, Microsoft gets to $6.7 trillion, and Amazon gets to $6.3 trillion. Now, GDP today is growing at about 3.5%. You project that forward to 2027, so five years forward, that gets $29.5 trillion in GDP, which means that those three, the TerraCaps, will be 70% of GDP. Now, I get that we're kind of comparing a flow against a, a stock, and that's not really, you're not allowed to do that, but... It's just to demonstrate the size of them. Starting to talk about some real money there. <laughs> Does that mean we're all just working for one of those five and everything else? Like we're working for YouTube here, I guess. Yeah, good point. We are doing that. <clears throat> he, he makes the point that the none of the, uh, the valuations aren't particularly stretched for those top for the top five, but when you project forward the size in relative to the size of the entire stock market of the entire economy they, they're kind of getting a little bit big is it is it possible is it sustainable is it just does it eventually has it has it has size forged its anchor as buffett like to say well buffett's buying apple right now so i doubt he thinks it does for apple is there any concern that what i think four out of those five uh sell advertising as part of their revenue base <laughs> Yeah, you which just has historically be. been kind of a, you know, pro-cyclical kind of uh, business. Yeah, I th- I think like the pushback. So just looking at Apple, I mean, it's forty-five percent of the revenue is in the Americas. It looks like. Hang on, let me get to the right right column. Forty-two, twenty-four percent in Europe. Gotta love the Europe exposure right now. Eighteen point seven in China seven in Japan and seven in the rest of Asia Pacific. So, I mean, I'm just not sure GDP is quite the right 
metric. I mean, you're yeah, talking about real global companies here. Yeah. You could switch it around to gross national product, which would be what US companies earn globally. So resident companies earn globally. Yeah. But you find that it's it's going to give you exact it's it's exactly the same number as GDP. I don't know how that works out, but they're always they're very, very tight together. So it doesn't change the analysis much or at all. Yeah, I guess I you know it's just you know, Google's 54% international, 47, 45% uh you know, US. So I, I just I don't know. That would be the only quibble that I have. But I don't disagree with the with the thought. I mean, this is kind of what we were saying when when all this the stocks that were frothy to say the least. I said, you know, if if that group is correct, then like they're basically gonna suck up all the economic profit in the US, right? Like I don't see how the math would work otherwise. Do you think I've like the the, the argument for these big five? Isn't that like almost literally the argument for these big five being able to sustain the size that they are, that they, nothing competes with them really? Like when you look at how big they are relative to every other company, like all of these companies could go and buy themselves an airline to airline. fly everybody around. <laughs> airline would never even notice. Those are you tiny. wouldn't notice. Yeah, wouldn't notice that, that the relative size is so, is so much bigger. Yeah. Like, yeah. Is, it, is it in fact the case that they have actually extracted all of the economic profit from all of these other businesses because everybody's sort of compelled to advertise on Google, advertise on Facebook, buy Microsoft products and so on, buy Apple products. Is it fair that they are valued that way? I think it's hard to argue that it's not fair. Uh, you know, if it doesn't work out, I think you look back and say, well, it's kind of obvious. But I mean, you know, Apple... They fucking take 30% of every transaction that's digital over their platform, and they do it because they can. I mean, yeah. in retrospect, I think it's kind of bogus that Microsoft doesn't get 30% of everything on a PC. What a missed opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Don't give them any ideas, but yeah, yeah. Uh, get, get I some, mean, as someone that owns the get stock, I'd be it. fine with it. It's this is garbage that Apple can do this. Not to mention their apps like suck now. My buddy was just bitching about Apple Music. Apple Podcasts is laughable. But, you know, somehow they just work. Yeah, you could make the argument that uh, Excel is undercharged for, <laughs> given how useful that is in the world. Central to the... Uh, everything, right? I mean... <laughs> it's like energy. It's in everything. Yeah. Yes. It's the, the Rubisco. Uh, if we, we would go back to that segment on... Uh, <clears throat> But yeah, I mean, you know, the services growth, I mean, just in Apple, you're looking at, you know, 2018 was 39.7 billion today. It's 68.4 billion and it's a lot of margin. I mean, that's, you know, 47.7 billion of gross profit on 68.4 billion of revenues. There aren't many businesses historically that have done anything like that and that own 89% share of American teens and they're going to tax everything that's built upon them in perpetuity unless somebody steps in and stops it. Google is the first DOJ company that really makes money. Lunch. Yeah, well, the, I saw I saw a tweet today that it was the amount of money that they've spent on lobbying antitrust. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> One stat from this price of time. Good ROI. We'll get to. Yeah, real good ROI. Was, well, let's uh, let's segue across. Let's. Do I mean, that. the thing. No, that's okay. We can. We don't have to go all the way. It's just that 2014, there were zero DOJ antitrust case filed, and the year after, we had like an insane. I forget. I'll, we'll get to the number, but billions and billions of dollars of M and A activity after that. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Apple though is like. I, I don't know. I don't know what happens with the app store. It, it drives me insane that they're allowed to do that. But, you know, even if you were to file, like, it's not a handset issue, right? And then, like, because there's plenty of handsets that people could choose. And like I said, there's something like 80% of US teens are choosing the iPhone. So I don't know that you can, like, argue it's a hardware issue. Can you decouple the software and the hardware? I, I, I don't know. Where was Microsoft when the DOJ came down on them as as on the platform on the desktop market? Well, I mean, I think what remember that, yeah, and they just tried to install a browser. Imagine 
They should have taken 30% of everything. What a fucking miss. Yeah. They just weren't thinking big enough. Because Apple sort of got themselves into that same position, haven't they? Like they're, they're now where Microsoft was. And if they're it's taking complete a garbage. You can't take a, if you're taking a 30% clip of everything that's going through, like you're, you're painting a big target on you. Yeah, I mean, it's not everything, right? It's just digital goods. But like if you're on Roblox, they get their take no matter. They didn't develop it, right? They didn't like the Twitter, the stupid super follow things that I do. I'm on the desktop Twitter 98% of the time. The only thing that Apple is facilitating between me and the users is easy pay. And they're taking 30%. Visa takes two. Why did they let Apple do that? Why do they use uh, well, Apple I mean, in that? They Why have not no use payment platform? Well, because they're on the app, right? And they want super follows through the app. And if you're doing it through the app and it's a digital experience, Apple gets their take. It's the greatest toll road ever. It's ridiculous. Should, I don't know if it continues, but like looking at it today, I don't know how you can say it's egregiously valued. So the risk is regulatory. What about? VR, I guess, like what's the what's the other some sort of tangential technology, I guess, uh, that moves you off the phone to the next thing. Yeah, but they've demonstrated a pretty good ability to uh, go out there and copy. Right. They're not especially they're not really known as innovators as much as they are really good copiers. Yep. <clears throat> I mean, I don't know, 4% cash flow yield on Apple. You know, looking at 2023 estimates, that could work. It's not that it's bad. Only, it's only 25 times. It's, it's Eventually, it'll go to 10, but what how big the earnings What would say is. about that PE? I think he'd probably say that you have to think about how long the competitive advantage period is going to exist and what the returns on incremental capital are, and then apply some sort of fade rate, which uh, you can argue whether or not base rates even apply to a business that's decoupled from base rates for this long. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know that base rates apply to N equals one. How many businesses in history have grown from 143 billion in revenue to 198 billion in revenue in two years? The base rate always applies eventually. Yeah, okay. But like the when is a very important question. True. You don't think these businesses are different? I mean, Google is a different business to anything that's gone before. Microsoft's a different business to anything. Apple, like maybe that. Uh, but is it? I mean, you could say that Google is just the you know, combination of multiple businesses that existed before, like Yellow Pages. Uh, that was a great business. Postal Service. Uh, Less good business. Well, uh, what else? Putting up posters, advertising agencies. I don't classifieds. know. Like classifieds. Classifieds, sure. I don't know. It's going to be hard to displace. But it's like they've aggregated all of those newspapers all together into one place and their marginal cost is sort of minimal. Those were pretty good businesses. Yeah. I mean, look, eventually the earnings multiply be, will be like 10 times. But if it's a trillion dollar revenue business putting off, you know, 300 billion in cash. Still got a lot of ways to go. I don't know. That's a $3 trillion business? Yeah, arguably. I mean, I don't know. And maybe well, what are it your alternatives? You stick it in the 10-year and then <laughs> three point something percent. So you're already ahead of the 10-year and it's growing. And they've got lots of levers that they can pull. I mean, I think Pretty the thing argument. that's hard about this, right, is like it makes sense. Like intuitively, it makes sense. But here you've got Berkshires out here. I, I think we'd all agree Berkshire knows how to invest. They're buying Apple and Amazon as of recently. So, I mean, you know, I don't know. So it makes the game snow, hard. Snowflake, a few other things. In there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if it was easy, we'd have nothing to talk about. That's true. <laughs> Agreed. Who wants to take it? Jake, go ahead. I mean, unless, I don't know, unless you want me to piggyback, but 
I, I would just say that the, I, it actually is kind of a natural segue. Yeah. This paper, I mean, it was written January 29th, 2014. I'll, uh, I'll send it to Toby so we can drop it in the show notes. But, you know, he's basically uh, Malbison saying that uh, he used, uh, here's another one that I'm going to mess up that I shouldn't, uh, Demoderan uh, said that an 8% cost of uh, capital is what you should use generally. Uh, so Mobison said that, uh, the, the multiple that he was, um, anchoring to is 12 and a half times PE. And basically that, uh, you know, steady state of 8%. Yeah. So steady state value is your no pat. So net operating profit after tax normalized divided by the 8% cost of capital plus excess cash. And if you want to start using growth, uh, you know, the paper goes on to say that the growth should be growth that delivers uh, more than the cost of capital. Otherwise, the growth isn't actually adding any value, uh, especially when you, you know, because you're discounting it back. So then, you know, you've got these two components of your steady state value and then your future value creation. And I, I think, uh, you know, one of, I've, I've, I'm pretty sure I've said in the past, I think expensive and small can work. I think expensive and big is really tough to make work. And the reason that I say that is you've got your, you're, you're paying a lot, your steady state base that you're paying for is quite high. So then you need the future base to grow into the valuation that you're uh, paying for. And that's really tough. Um, but as we just talked about, I mean, there's five companies that have proven that thought wrong here for a long time. So, you know, I don't know. It was, it, it's a very interesting paper. Uh, he got me hooked five when he out said of hundreds of thousands. Yeah, but there are also five that could have changed your life. So, um, true. I don't know. It's uh, arguably a decent decent reason to have something, some exposure to something like that. I don't know, but uh, in uh, based on year end twenty thirteen prices and twenty fourteen consensus earnings estimates. Apple and Edison International both had a PE of 12.8. Uh, and that's kind of the hook that I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then he goes in to discuss, you know, how he how he breaks down everything. So I think it's a great read. That uh, is interesting. So one, uh, one, I assume a utility uh, probably being priced based on uh, people reaching for yield, I think at that time period, right? N nothing on your bond portfolio. I need something safe. They bid up the price of a utility that was happening then uh, versus another one that I think probably the narrative at that point was that this is so big, it can't grow further than this. Uh, eventually this has to roll over, you know, revenue numbers and therefore discount the fade, the multiple on it. Yeah. So very, very different story. stories kind of like coming together this way uh, and meeting at 12 and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Single product story. Are people going to start to defer iPhones? How many people are still going to upgrade their phone? Uh, look at every other phone company in history. They've gone away. Mm -hmm. So uh, Apple's cash flow return on investment or on invested capital looks like it was 25%. Versus Edison International's was five percent, and the uh, sorry for the noise. The five-year expected growth rate was fifty percent for Apple and seven percent for Edison. And uh, Apple was net cash, and Edison had a healthy amount of debt. So, just kind of interesting how the What's same. Not to like. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so I don't know. You know, that was the hook that got me into it, and then I started reading. And like I said, he he's uh, always good to get people thinking. So. It was uh, one that I would say is probably worth the 20 minutes or so it'll take to get through. What do you think I, about that discount rate, that 8%? Was that 2014? Yeah. That he proposed then? And that was based yeah. on the inversion of the PE? Is that how he got there? Uh, kind, of, kind of the other way around, probably. I'm going to guess that that was like some kind of weighted average cost of capital calculation with okay. debt and it makes equity. Sense. Yeah. I don't know how he did it, but Every time that I've ever seen him break it down, it, it seems very, uh, the man has a process. Let's put it that way. I would also, and that I don't know how to articulate pushback that every time they ask Buffett and Munger about cost of capital, they say, we have no idea what ours is. It's a stupid concept. We would never even calculate that. Uh, 
who cares? You should be thinking about opportunity costs, not cost of capital. Yeah, but then the other thing is like, didn't Buffett charge his portfolio companies like 15% to use the debt? Sure. So he's got to have some cost. Even more when rates were higher. Yeah. I think what they're probably actually saying is that we have a cost of capital, but if you ask us to put like an equity risk premium and beta weight it, we think that's all nonsense. Buffett runs Berkshire like the Fed, the Fed should be run, which is all the capital you want, but it's going to be very expensive to get it. Is that to encourage them to go outside to get the capital elsewhere? Or is that to encourage them not to use? It's to encourage them to be judicious in their use of capital. From yeah. Buffett. Yeah. I think it is also to incentivize going outside. But yeah, I mean, the thing is, the companies that Buffett's buying really don't need that incentive. But if you think about like most people, you don't want to give them an easy way to get capital that's cheap. Tends to get people fat and lazy. There's a good question here. What was Buffett buying in 73, 74? We don't know, do we? Because that was the, the letter start in 77. So was that a, was that, that was his Buffett little partnership? Uh, no, he had wound it up by then. I think that was the little lull before in between. He was still doing stuff. Um, you know, so BPL had been wound down already. Okay. But but Berkshire was around and he was working on it, but it was they were doing hadn't announced anything yet. They were, yeah, they were I think he was doing was just, just a lot of smaller kind of private stuff too. Yeah. Well, they bought season 72, right? I think. I yeah. Know, right? Oh, there you go. <laughs> There's the answer. Like Gotta a... Just buy C's candy. Look, look out for a C's. Yeah, that helps. And let us all know if you find one. <laughs> yeah, and it's got to be kind of cheap. Yeah. 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 Yeah, he didn't. He wasn't. He wasn't a big. Wasn't buying a lot of gold around that time when that was kind of the popular, was more popular. No. Not a fan. Now he's buying energy. Is that a narrowing of the opportunity set, or is that what, what's the what's the what's the energy view that it's returning capital? Is that the main thing that he's grabbed onto? I think he likes to see that. Um... A management team commit to the cap allocation strategy of a return to their shareholders of a percentage of net income or whatever kind of flow you want to use. Um, you've seen him reference that multiple times, uh, whether it was PetroChina. Um, I think a slide that he talked about for um, this most recent one with uh, Oxy. So I think he just likes to know, like, I'm getting my money back here sooner than later. And Anything else good that happens is kind of nice to have, but at least I know I'm getting my money back pretty quickly. Yeah, I think, uh, I don't think he'd be doing energy. He wouldn't be, I don't think he'd be buying Occidental today if he was a young Buffett. I, I do, I mean, some of it's size. He can't like plow a lot of money in there. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't be shocked if he was doing one of these hold co, you know, uh, a lot of guys at Capital Camp are doing this. Um, I, I could see them doing something like that, where you're buying like cheap industrials, trying to suck the equity out through refinancing and rolling it up. I do find it funny when he Buffett like kind of laughs at all of us about like how much how easy it was for him to get in or out of something like volume wise. Like oh, I couldn't believe I was able to punch out of the airlines <laughs> so easily. <laughs> Yeah, that was basically just rubbing it in all of our faces, kind of in a discreet way. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. I think he said something similar in the last meeting about Oxy. Like he was surprised how much he could how much money he could get into it <laughs> so easily. He wasn't right on the airlines. So corrected the error though. Makes mistakes, but corrected the error. Like just, just was just like no wrong. Punch out by. Well, I'm saying when he punched out. Oh, he punched uh, out. Well, he's not measuring by stock price performance. He's measuring by like the quality of the business. Right. The yeah. The the, the thesis was everybody's going to compete in a more you know gentlemanly fashion than they have in the past, rather than 
undercutting each other and having the massive capital investments in new plans and running it, you know, whenever a new competitor comes in because somebody else fails, they get cheap planes and they compete on nothing. They're not going to do that anymore because the slots are fixed. And then it turns out that the business is massively cyclical. You can have it just, you can just shut down the entire world. This business don't work. So I think he changed his mind. Yeah. Who knew? All right. Should we bang out some uh, chancellor? Let's do it. All right. Uh, so let's see. This is uh, The Price of Time by Edward Chancellor. And it's all about interest rates. So his, the history of interest rates, and then especially a focus on what's happened in the last 10 years. Uh, Does he have world. that same chart that shows that interest rates have come down since 6,000 BC when he some does. king lent another king some amount of money for 60%. Yeah, of course he does. Uh, and now it's at zero, so therefore interest rates. So you can just do a straight line all the way to the bottom. Five, five millennia go. of interest rates. There we go. It's page one. Uh, <laughs> so so he, uh, he goes through and really like starts it off in a very much kind of Austrian economics sort of mindset, as far as I can tell. And, you know, he's referencing Henry Hazlitt and kind of economics in one lesson about how often it is that we as humans have this tendency to only look at the immediate effects of a policy and not look at all of the effects for everyone. And, you know, we focus on one special group and we ignore what happens to everyone else uh, and, and including these secondary unintended consequences. You could have, this book could have been called Unintended Consequences, basically. Um, so it, he, you know, he's got uh, some of the historical things are really interesting. So he says that, uh, Mesopotamians charged interest on loans before they discovered how to put wheels on a cart. Uh, so, so we've had we've had interest and uh, you know debt basically since before we had wheels. Um, it, it, like the 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 Latin for interest actually connotates the 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 concept of fertility, and money is derived from the word for like a flock. Uh, and capital actually comes from like head of cattle as so these word etymologies are they're all based sort of in like farming and, you know, things, things that are kind of growing on their own. Like there's there's fertility to it. Um, another interesting observation that finance was born in the shades of sanctity. And that was because like temples, like religious temples were some of the biggest, uh, you know, provider of loans early on. So a lot of that, I think, has to do with like trust in this in a system. Uh, so, you know. You figured maybe the temple wasn't going to screw you over. I don't know. Um, so there were regular debt crises throughout history, in like especially Mesopotamian history. Even every fifty years, they'd proclaim a debt jubilee and basically write down <laughs> all of the debts. Um, interesting fact: the first experiment in quantitative easing was in AD thirty-three when a banking crisis erupted, and Emperor Tiberius decided to lend out the imperial treasure free of interest to all of the patrician families. That's another thread that runs throughout this book is that like there is absolutely nothing new under the sun as far as you know what we've been doing, what the expectation should have been as to where this was going to lead. Um, and it's just like everything turned up to 11 is basically you know kind of the, the underlying uh, message. Uh, Another little bit sobering thought is that uh, very low interest rates appear to be a calm before a storm historically. So in Neo-Babylonia, the rates on silver dropped. Not long after that, Babylonia fell to the Persians. 18th century Holland saw rates drop not long before that the Dutch Republic was overrun by revolutionary France. So like just time after time, like low rates are sort of this eye of the hurricane that then kind of shit happens after that. Um, Another thing that we probably should have predicted, uh, when Emperor Augustus, who was the one right before Tiberius, he flooded Rome with treasure, interest rates dropped, and the house prices rose in Rome. So all these same things that we're seeing uh, have happened. Uh, Irving Fisher, who was an economist in the 1930s, has a nice quote in here about, interest is human impatience crystallized into a market rate. So a lot of it has to do with like the time value of money and how do you how do you coordinate the action and the economics through time? And that's one of the jobs that the interest rate is, it does. Um, you know, he goes into Baumbauwerk, uh, who was an Austrian economist, talking about how like the decline in the rate of interest leads to the adoption of more roundabout or time-consuming methods of production. So the lower the interest rate, the more that we put the 
emphasis on future goods and as opposed to now, which kind of makes me wonder, like, is this how we ended up with shortages today? Is that we had all these low rates that then led people into like these very futuristic thinking of, oh, let's build, uh, you know, spaceships for, you know, space tourism as opposed to like, well, hey, shit, we might need some like energy between then and <laughs> and now. Uh, and so we underinvested in a lot of basic things that like I think David Einhorn's talked about this right before, like all these sort of basic industries were starved of capital because we had these very futuristic and, and interest rates that are artificially low push entrepreneurs into that kind of thinking because of the time value of money. Uh, he goes into a bunch about John Law and all of the uh, like craziness that that guy was able to execute uh, through the Mississippi bubble, uh, which is kind of its own, probably its own, deserves its own segment at some point. Um, goes into Richard Cantillion, who, if we remember, was uh, the one who had this this idea of Cantillion effects. But he Cantillion said that when a national bank turns on the printing press and buys up government debt, the newly created money is initially trapped within the financial system where it inflates financial assets rather than consumer prices and only slowly seeps out into the wider economy. Boy, if that kind of doesn't describe like the last 10 years, uh, yeah. Cantillion writing in, you know, hundreds, right? I mean, all of this stuff is just nothing new. Um, a lot of stuff on uh, Walter Bajo, I think is how you say his name, it, uh, B-A-G-E-H-O-T. And this was a, a guy that was born into a banking family, worked as a, as a banker, and then became the editor of The Economist in the 1860s, all the way up until his death in 1877. And he had some great quotes about the good times of high prices almost always engender much fraud. You heard, you heard Chano saying that we're living in the golden age of fraud right now. Uh, another one, bad business takes time to grow, especially bad lending business, which is the most dangerous because when discovered, it saps credit and destroys the spring of industry. So this idea of you know financialization of the economy um, leading to this kind of reckless investment that then destroys the actual like industrial output. Uh, another great one was that uh, John Bull, which is like sort of like uh, John Q. Public in Britain at that time, John Bull can stand a great deal, but he cannot stand two percent. So, uh, another quote: like people won't take two percent; they won't bear the loss of income. Instead, they invest through care their careful savings in something impossible: a canal to Kamachka, which is a place in Russia, a railway to watch it, a plan for animating the Dead Sea a corporation for shipping skates to the torrid zone, which is almost like, like ice skates into hell. Uh, so he, he like, he had several of these kind of jokes about how basically like people can't withstand this low 2% return. Like they go seeking it's yield chasing basically. Like that's what he was talking about. It, and some of them, like uh, he made jokes about like people investing in a wheel for perpetual motion and then another one was for an undertaking, which shall in due time be revealed, which is basically like early SPACs, right? Like <laughs> he's, he's talking about like, well, we don't know what this business is going to do yet, but we're going to put money in here so we can go buy it and figure out what it's going to do. Um, let's scroll down a little bit. Uh, so he, he gets into like he goes in quotes like a lot of like William White from the, the, the uh, Bank of International Settlements. He was this guy that was kind of one of the truth speakers at, you know, 10 years ago, especially. Um, and, and basically like, he's just pointing out all the unintended consequences of, of low rates and what happens. And actually like low rates kind of begetting low rates after that. And a lot of that has to do with like this zombie company argument where, you know, this, this really like interest helps the natural selection of kind of less incompetent, less competent employers and inferior processes. Uh, and so like interest, kind of helps eliminate the industrial unfit is how he says it. Um, and so like the, the productive forces of the community are better utilized when we have higher rates. Um, and so one thing we, he points out that is the default rate on US junk bonds after the GFC was half of what the average of previous downturns was. So we basically like kept a bunch of companies on life support through cheap debt. Um, and which these zombies then, because they sort of like glob up the system and don't let it find a healthy equilibrium, they like keep rates low after that. Um, so, you know, you see that in Japan, you know, this very like sclerosis that has set in over so much time. Um, it's, it, I mean, it's shocking. Uh, you know, he gets into like the, the U S forest service firefighting, you know, before 1934, I didn't realize this, but they, they, they let, 
they only would fight man-made fires before 1934. And then after that, they had this policy called the 10 a.m. policy, which was every fire has to be out by 10 a.m. the next morning. And so, of course, you know, as we all know, like that built up into these, like the fires keep getting bigger and bigger and more destructive. And the analogies are obvious as to the, you know, fighting fires in, in our, in our uh, financial forests. Uh, that went, like I had mentioned before, 2014, the DOJ filed not a single antitrust case. The next year, global mergers top $5 trillion, half of that in the US. Um, so, and actually the number of US companies listed has halved from 1996 to 2016. So we've seen this like huge consolidation. Uh, <laughs> pretty rough on private equity. He says that no set of individuals benefited more from the Fed's easy money than the buyout barons. None were less deserving. <laughs> uh, let's see, let's find the good stuff here. Uh, oh, this is kind of interesting. 19, in 1899, the president of Equitable Life, which was a, like an insurance company, asked all the respected financiers of that time period the, the future course of long-term rates. And yields at that point in 1899 had been falling for decades, kind of similar to where we might find ourselves today. Uh, all 69 responses that he got said it was basically going to be lower for longer. And they were all wrong. The bond bull market had already ended and US Treasury yields rose for decades after that. So these turns in the bond market occur very infrequently, but when they do, they last for you know decades at a time. Uh, so you know, question maybe where are we at? We don't know if we're in one of those, but kind of looks a little bit that way if you look at the chart. Uh, pretty rough on, <laughs> really rough on China, actually. Uh, he talks a lot about how much just the expansion of credit has been there. Um, the uh, one interesting thing about international banking rules, so like Basel, all that. Basel one in 1988, 30 pages. Basel three in 2011, 616 pages. So we've just seen this complexity of in just insane amounts. And uh, Hiram Minsky, who, Hyman Minsky, pointed out in the 1930s that that financial innovation is really just like a code word for the intention to get around regulation that was put in during the last crisis. And so uh, he, he actually, he uh, made it comparable to the Maginot line in France, which was this like huge uh, wall and like structure that was built to keep the Germans from invading France again. And basically the Germans just went right around it. Uh, so like basically all the you know financial innovation is just to get around the Maginot line of the previous regulations. Um, Last thing we'll get into is uh, the he talks about the road to serfdom, which was Hayek's you know kind of famous treaty treatise on uh, too much government intervention and where that leads. And so uh, I'm going to quote this last little bit. So far, each step that we have taken on this new road to serfdom has been incremental and justified on the grounds of expediency. Little thought has been given to the general direction in which we've been traveling. We've blundered, to use Hayek's term, into greater government control of the economy. And the more we blunder, the more the system appears to fail, which in turn justifies further interventions. So uh, lots of good stuff in this book. Uh, it, it, I was kind of joking before we started that it reads a little bit like if you had just been following Zero Hedge for the last 10 years of all the <laughs> stories that are in it, but then applied some academic rigor to it. Uh, but if you're of an Austrian bent, uh, it's and if you like the history of, of finance and, you know, Chancellor's probably the best financial historian alive today, I think um, that's probably a, a fair argument. So check it yeah. out. Devil Take the Hardmost is one of the best books I've read. Yeah. I've bought the new one, but I haven't read it yet. Yeah, that was great. Thanks, JT. Yeah, sorry it went on a little longer than I was. I actually only like hit about half the things that I've written down. So, <laughs> no, we need it. We we got fifteen minutes to go here. Do, do you? Uh, we might need to come back to this. <laughs> yeah, and no, I'm not going back. <laughs> do you? Do you? Uh, do you think that the unintended consequences stuff? Like, do you think that these consequences? Everybody knows what what happens. It's just that they say the crisis right now is so important that we'll just take these consequences when they. That's that's future. That's our problem in the future that's not a problem now give me chased but not yet yeah yeah and now we have the uh <laughs> bigger problems now we have the unintended consequences so now we'll just deal with those with more interventions now solve that problem down the road it's quite possible that yeah. that reset is the only actual out for the i don't know i mean i don't know what that looks like exactly i try not to think about it too much because it's it's scary 
but you sort of just look at how the puzzle pieces all fit together. And it's like, I don't know how you ever get off of this road without just kind of cathartic tear down and, and rebuild in a new image. You keep on, you keep on kicking that can into, or, or you, you push the, you put the problem up to the next level of government and then eventually get to the point where you blow up because there's no one above you to bail you out. We need an alien, uh, you know, a line of credit to Mars or something. <laughs> Is that what What's so bad about the road we're on? Uh, well, I would say that uh, Chancellor would say that it it leads to the realization that there was a lot of very unproductive investment that will turn out to be need to be liquidated or or the change hands and. That's very painful. Uh, and if we, the further that we fight that, the less growth we have. And the less growth we have, the more likely we are to probably be at each other's throats historically. Um, so there's just a lot of fragility in a, in a zero sum, you know, pie not growing world, I think. So we need to shrink the pie drastically to accelerate all of the social unrest to then get to the other side that is better, hopefully. <sighs> I guess it's the amount of pain that you're that we're collectively willing to endure. But there's two things going on. I'm right? not there's willing the, to accelerate that pain. Fuck that. There's <laughs> two things going on, right? There's the actual productive capacity, like the stuff that we make, and we're incrementally better at that all the time. But then there's there's the financialization of it, which so in some sense the, the claims to all of that stuff potentially unnecessary, right? And it's that financialization of it that deranges the. Uh, the incentives of people who are in the system where, you know, that you, that one of my favorite kind of rough valuation measures is that Tobin's Q, which is um, replacement value of assets versus the market value of the assets. And if it's constantly at this premium to replacement value, you just you incentivize to be participating financially, rolling stuff up and doing, you know, yep. stock market maneuvers instead of going and building stuff. And, and that's, the, that's what actually takes us forward so i don't know that it, that's true why wouldn't you be incentivized to uh start the thing and flip it to the guy that's rolling it up <laughs> well so let me let me give you another uh chancellor quote here the trouble is that soaring asset prices don't make a nation any richer they only produce the illusion of wealth investors enjoy capital gains when asset prices rise but any immediate gains are offset by lower investment returns going forward and he so he says that in late 2018 U.S. household wealth had reached $100 trillion, a sum equivalent to five times U.S. GDP. By contrast, household wealth in the post-war decades averaged just three and a half G times GDP. So we've basically just like pumped up the, the claims on the wealth, but it's not, that's not actually real wealth. Like production capacity is, is probably more aligned with what wealth is. I guess. I don't know. I got to read this and maybe try to talk to him. You should. He'd be great for uh, business brew. I mean, I, I, I guess I get it, but I also I also kind of don't. I mean, for all the bitching, like we just shut down the world and got to the other side pretty OK. Now, whether or not that was the right idea, people are free to, to disagree on. And I I'm not going to sit here and say government's perfect, but uh, and we probably almost certainly overstimulated on the back end, but uh, I don't know if, if you can actually shut down an economy and avoid a collapse, that's a pretty compelling reason for me to say that uh, maybe we are, have learned a little bit from the past. Now we'll see if we can slow down inflation and if there's runaway inflation and destitution and uh, famine, then, uh, you know, then I'm wrong. <laughs> but I think, I think if there's like a reset of wealth, like, I think there is just, kind of global famine going on at the moment, isn't there? There's, yeah. there's certainly some uh, energy problems in, in Europe. I, yeah, are leading to the shutdown of productive capacity, and you know, but like I don't think that yields. was a rates issue. Like rates, I don't think rates are the reason that people didn't invest in energy. Like I, I don't buy that. I just think people had gotten waxed for so long that no one wanted to invest in energy. If anything, rates are the reason for the shale boom. That then led to a bunch of stuff. Well, wouldn't you say though that those low rates that led to the shale boom were the 
instability that was created by low rates for that industry. I guess, but then like, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe. But like, if you don't have the shale boom, then what, oil is at 130 and then maybe we have more deep well, like water wells. So now we're just getting there. But like, I don't know, it took 10 years. We had a whole lot of uh, consumer surplus in the middle. If you believe in the time value of assets and money, that's probably a rational thing to do. There's a there's a good response every day. I get a little bit more weighted towards trend following. I don't want to be long equity. I don't want to think about all this doom and gloom. Just ride the trend wherever it goes. Not a bad idea. There's a lot I to. I mean, CTA. statistically, you have a CTA. But they do well can, at times. You could do it with anything. You, you like the using any of those like the 200 day to stay in and out of different asset classes has seemed to work pretty well over a long period of time. I don't think it always does, but it, it, it doesn't work well in periods of time, ironically, like what we've just gone through because there's a lot of whipsaws to get people in and out. Yeah. I mean, I just think you got to ask yourself, if I get out of the strategy I'm running and I get into some sort of trend following and I get whipsawed, am I going to be okay with that? Because that, I think the way that those return streams are characterized is a lot of small losses followed by a big run. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's what they're aiming for. I mean, yeah. if you look at, you could look at Japan as an example, right? If you implemented the, like a, some sort of trend following on the Nikkei, you got pulled out. You, you would have stayed in the market all the way to the very top, even though it was like, you knew it was a hundred times cape. You knew it was too expensive and you were desperately trying to get out. You're just waiting for the, how, it to did, cross over. How quick did, you got out pretty reasonably good timing then? You did, you did. Because then it proceeded down so far and then the- Still um, going. <laughs> well, it's proceeded down so far and then it, you know, it, it, that was 92 and here we are, like it's, it didn't cross over or I'm not sure if it even has. It was like, it was, it was below it for so long and it got you back in at the bottom and like you've, you've kind of not performed as well since the bottom in Japan, but relative to how much- loss you didn't take from the top you're still ahead and i think that's the that's the thesis for for a lot of the trend following it keeps you out of the waterfall i don't yeah, think you gotta think well about the times names. that you want to do it right yeah that's right because you can get you can get gapped and screwed on stuff like they that move around i do much. want it on a yeah on an index if i did something like that i'd probably do a 50 day 200 day because you don't want to do like 30 and 10 then you're just trading all the time but no, all of them, all of them get whipsawed. All of them get in and out of the wrong time. There's no like the Corey Hofstein and um, uh, the Resolve guys. Sorry, I'm just blanking a little bit on what they currently call themselves. Um, just stop University. Sorry, I don't know what the what they're currently trading under. But the those guys have looked at. You know, they Adam don't Butler. look at Adam Butler. Yeah, Adam Butler's crew. They they look at. Um, they're agnostic to the. They just say use all of them put a small amount mm. of capital in each and pull it out because they're all going to be wrong. Oh, that makes some sense. So you're never in or out. It's not binary. Yeah. That way, if you're like kind of high off of a crossover the, or something, maybe some of the shorter ones get you yeah. in and yeah. yeah. Huh. Okay. Yeah. That's sounds logical. It's just now it's getting more complex because you've got however many buckets you decide, however many moving averages you decide. And that's one. Yeah, you know, how many markets are you going to do it on? Your equity strategy has 10 buckets yeah. for trading spy. Yeah, you know. <laughs> one underlying. <laughs> now you've got thousands of portfolios you're tracking just to probably it works. You can do it with a computer. It's just hard to build. Yeah, you'd want it on uh, on commodities too, I would think, if you really want to be diversified. You don't just want to have it on one market. Right. Yeah. So you hope that you're in something all the time. Yeah, it's so hard. good luck with that idea. <laughs> you can do it. I actually don't think it's a bad idea, but I mean, I think I think that's what Corey and uh, Adam do. They can. I think there's a. They've got something out there. Romo, Romo. I forget what they ended up calling the ETFs. I shouldn't. I don't know if I can say the tickers. Oh God, we just got fined. <laughs> <laughs> the the the, uh, the regulation around financial marketing is ridiculous. I understand that, like, you got to protect like people from shysters, but you know the inability to talk about a product. Is kind of nuts. The marketing rule is one thing, but there's also all the stuff that goes on in the back end. Like they've got guys in there thinking about how to make your life harder all the time. That's all they do. Meanwhile, Kathy Wood compliance. can say we have 70% forward returns or some nonsense like that. And she's still sure how she there. did that one. That's what the models show. <laughs> yeah. 
That's crazy. Meanwhile, you know, worried about dropping into some ETF ticker and a legitimate nuanced discussion. Fucking stupid. Well, anyway. or if someone if someone's talking about the uh, your own, then you're not you're not able to uh, correct. You know, if something's wrong in that discussion, you can't correct you it. You can't at all. even say anything. Like no, you can't you can't participate. Oh, that's wild. So I could go out and spread fake news about like yours, and you can't even jump in and be like, "That's not correct." That's it. Wow. What are we smart? Here? Smart. <laughs> well, that's a good example of when governments go wrong. You need some financial innovation to get around that. Do, Bill, were you here for? Were you here for the eye? Blockchain of the storm? solves this. If blockchain does solve this. Were you here for the eye of the? Were, were you talking eye of the storm when you were on? Was that last week or was it the week before? I thought that was yeah. I thought that was two weeks ago, wasn't it? Do you, do you guys think we're still in the eye of the storm, or have we moved out the other side? Because it seems to me like there's a little bit of vol around. Toby, quit reading my journal. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. Because if if we were going to see if this was like a mega bear, where nine months in, if we measure it from the start of the year, mega bears run eighteen months, two years. We're coming into the back half, which will mean we're going to see some. Um, Waterfalls. Two thirds of the yeah. down. This is the nasty period if we're into it. It it just seems really hard to imagine though, because it seems like the most everybody obvious, feels that way. Everybody knows this is about yeah. to happen. So can it happen if everyone knows it's about to happen? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. And every time I look at how you hedge it, all the hedges are bananas expensive because yeah. everybody knows that it's going to happen, which means that I think it doesn't happen. And yet, and yet, and yet, how does it not happen if you push rates to, I don't know, whatever, 6%? Well, that's the thing that does it, right? What's cost capital? 8%? Yeah. I mean, I, I just said like you just automatically plug in 10 until like 10 years ago. And then since 10 years ago, I don't know. Zero. I don't know what the number that. is. <laughs> it's zero. 10 year plus some margin. Well, yeah, I don't know. I will say that in, I did some testing in the in the market that f- in a falling market like we had. I haven't looked at this in a few years, but in the falling market that we had, paying up to the ten year was perfectly fine at any point in time. You've been bailed out at every single point. Well, here's something that it's it's interesting that I I don't think I ever really quite put together. But he was talking uh, about financial repression, and between 1945 and 1980, interest rates in the U.S. and the U.K. average minus three and a half percent in real terms. So that created an annual subsidy to the US government equivalent to 20% of tax revenues thanks to the lowered interest expense. And so due to that repression, the US national debt relative to GDP declined by 75%. So we were able to basically like delever by having negative real yields for a long period of time. Now, as you know from kind of Buffett's study that he did of like 17-year time periods, like there were some rough rough time periods in there for investors. So I don't know. Even if you do kind of solve the problem by inflating your way out of it, uh, that doesn't mean that you're going to have a good experience as an investor necessarily. Brian says, if there's a way for it to happen when none of the hedges work, that's how it will happen. Yeah, I agree. That's how it's going to happen. Well, that's, yeah, that's the uh, kind of tail risk issue that you have. If it's It threads the tail risk. It just never triggers the, the VIX never, never gets that high. Never spikes VIX high enough to pay it just you slides, out. It, it slides slowly. It's the old slow man motion into the crash. bathtub. <laughs> I think we're under, we've only had our fourth rally of this of this decline so far. So okay. 2007, 2009 was 17 or 18. So it's fairly early days there. <sighs> Ouch. Maybe we base and rocket ship. I don't know. <laughs> You just got to be in the terror caps and you'd be okay. That's what we figured out. It's all comes full circle. Just well, get back in the terror caps. I mean, the problem is if the water's if fine. It's, if it's economic driven and like commodities driven, I don't think that not being, I, I don't know, man. Like you're going to have to be really good. Small isn't going to save you. That I'm certain of. Small is going to get shellacked on a, on a business result basis. Mm. But the multiple, you know, maybe maybe helps you, but I don't know, man. I haven't seen one piece of evidence in my life that thinks that when shit gets messed up, the small guy wins. And on that cheery note, Ooh. that's time. We did it, amigos. 
we made it. <laughs> we made it. Uh, next week we're going to be in. Uh, we're going to be at a conference, and uh, we're going to be trying to do it live from the conference. It's going to be starting a little bit late. I think we're at eleven ten. Uh, are Coast. we Tuesday or Monday? What are we? We're Tuesday. But nice. Yeah. They bumped us to Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, we'll so see if they didn't bump us. We asked, and they gave what we wanted. That's right. Because they respect us. Brown M and M's in the rider. Yes, we'll see if we're able to execute I want blue it live. Ones. It's possible we won't be able to, and we'll have to like tape delay or something. But we'll see. We're trying to figure it out. Yeah. 